All right, we are doing a television show once again for Real Deep Dive, just stretching the barriers. Again, one chosen by me. And both Rachel and I are suckers for the uh, anthology show. Uh, yeah. yeah, Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Creep Show. Yeah, Tales from the Crypt. And for this one, I mean, I was under the impression that we were going to cover the Twilight Zone at some point or another, but instead we're doing the Night Gallery, which is kind of the second banana in Rod Serling's uh, ongoing legacy. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that he had another anthology series. And, you know, it's not as good or as influential as The Twilight Zone. But to me, The Night Gallery was my introduction to loving the horror genre as a tween. And it was also the introduction to a lot of very famous horror writers, such as Lovecraft, which I know we're going to go into uh, in more detail later. One of the things that is very curious for me is, I mean, The Twilight Zone is a perennial classic. Uh, everybody loves it. It's about as close as anything can get to being universally beloved. And it has ripples throughout all of pop culture. There are, you know, the constant wave of Simpsons parodies, uh, for one thing, and just everyone else referencing it here and there and marathons on the, on the 4th of July and on New Year's. And Night Gallery doesn't get even an ounce of that love. And if this episode, I kind of want to talk at least a little bit about yeah, just spitballing as to why that could be. But we'll be getting into that as well as other facets of the program. My name is Ryan. It's a real deep dive. And I'm Rachel, back once again. The perpetual co-host. Yes, perpetual co-host. All right, before we dive into the episodes that uh, Rachel handpicked, I thought it would be good to do a general overview of this series for people who aren't familiar with it. As I stated earlier, it is an anthology TV series that ran for three seasons on NBC from December 1970 to May of 1973. It was Rod Serling's follow-up to The Twilight Zone. Uh, the episodes are about an hour long and uh, feature vignettes of various lengths. Some of them are 10 minutes long, some of them are 45. Yeah, and, I've, and there are some in later seasons that are literally a minute. Yeah, it is uh, similar to The Twilight Zone in terms of uh, Serling's presence. Um, you'll see random celebrities and people who would become very famous later on, and there are lots of O. Henry-style twist endings. Uh, however, the focus on the storytelling is more on supernatural horror rather than science fiction. The show is surrounded by a framing device that finds Rod Serling in an art gallery. Creepy uh, as fuck art gallery. Yeah, he introduces paintings uh, done by uh, art directors Thomas J. Wright and, I'm probably going to butcher this, Jaroslav uh, Geber. Uh, each one uh, reflects the story in some way, while some of them are directly featured in the plot itself. That's really only in the pilot movie. For the rest of them, they're just sort of like the inspiration to kind of, you know, get you interested in the story. I'm guessing they just kind of ran out of excuses to put a painting in the story. Yeah, I mean, and unlike The Twilight Zone, Serling doesn't appear in any of the stories themselves. He's just there as the host. Yeah, as Rachel said before, there was a pilot that was a TV movie. It was three segments that aired on November 8th, 1969. Interestingly enough, it features the directorial debut of Steven Spielberg. He directed Joan Crawford in a story where she is trying to get her eyesight back. Oh, that was really creepy. I mean, they're all, all, most of them are creepy. I dug into that a little bit because that's a pretty interesting footnote in the history of film. It's Spielberg's directorial debut. Apparently Crawford detested Spielberg and kept trying to get him fired. She later apologized when Spielberg became one of the biggest directors in the world. Haha. And, and uh, I believe Spielberg also directs the segment in another episode. 
that TV movie did win an Edgar Allan Poe Award for uh, Rod Serling's writing on it. As it is in the Twilight Zone, uh, Serling wrote many episodes, most notably Cool Air, which is based on a Lovecraft short story. It's better than the short story, I have to say. It's very well done. And he also wrote uh, Pickman's Model, which got an Emmy nomination, in addition to uh, another one that we'll be talking about later on. Mm -hmm. The Night Gallery's writing staff doesn't have quite the same pedigree as the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone's number of masterful episodes scripted by, uh, you know, Matheson. However, Robert Block did a couple of ones, and most notably Lagoda's Hands, which was written by August Derleth, one of Lovecraft's many, many imitators. Yeah, it's a, a Lagoda's Heads. Lagoda's Heads, rather, mm -hmm. sorry. Last Rites for a Dead Druid which was originally based on an uncompleted Lovecraft story that was finished by uh, Hazel uh, Heald, but it was heavily rewritten to the point where it had no resemblance to the original plot to begin with. Yeah, um, The Last Rites for a Dead Druid, I'm confusing it with a different episode. I think I might be, because I've like watched the DVD for the first season all the time, and I'm not as familiar with the third season. It used to be on Hulu, but it's not really on there anymore. Yeah, unlike The Twilight Zone, Rod Serling didn't have nearly as much creative control over the show, which I believe is a cause for its suffering, but Serling's a pro, and he wrote it out as best he could. Mm -hmm. uh, the second season began using uh, blackout sketches in between the longer story segments. Blackout sketch is a term for, like, a slapsticky comedic sketch reminiscent of old silent films. Serling was very opposed to this. He thought it was totally jarring to go from, like, like an Edgar Allan Poe or H.P. Lovecraft-style supernatural horror story and then do some kind of wacky Three Stooges nonsense. Yeah, I think probably the one that I that I think is actually good from, like, one of those Blackout sketches is there's... A bunch of people get onto this elevator and they're all men. And then this giant skeleton in a trench coat wearing a hat. And he's really creepy looking, gets in the elevator. And the elevator stops again. And a lady walks in and they all take off their hats. All the men. Except for the skeleton dude. So some guy just nudges the skeleton guy. He's like, he's like, fine, you know, take off your hat, you know, non-verbally. So the skeleton guy just lifts his head off and like tucks it under his arm. Hardy har har. Yeah, I mean, it's probably, you know, slightly longer than I just described it, but it's the only one that I thought was actually kind of endearing. Yeah, I could see that working. I haven't actually watched that one myself, but in the proper context, that could be cute. That'd be a chuckle. Mm -hmm. Anyways, the blackout sketches were scaled back for the final season. They were also cut down to, episodes were cut down to a half hour, I believe, for the third season. The music for this show, uh, the pilot and much of the incidental music in various episodes was supervised by uh, Billy Goldenberg. He has a very long resume, as most composers who do film and television. Notably, he hit things off with Spielberg because he scored uh, Spielberg's very first feature, Duel, in 1971. Oh, very nice. The opening title for seasons one and two were uh, was composed by Gil Melee. It is one of the earliest TV intros to have electronic instruments, and it is suitably eerie. Yeah, it used to scare the hell out of me when I was a kid. I mean, I'm probably I'll talk more about it later, but I would watch this show by myself as a scaredy cat, eleven to twelve year old, and the opening theme always made me go. Ugh. 
Now, the opening theme for Season 3 was done by Eddie Sauter, who has a background in big band swing jazz, and that is also readily apparent because it's basically like Nelson Riddle's uh, 1960s Batman music, just coked out of its gourd. <laughs> I'm not quite... I don't think it works quite as well. It's the 70s. I mean, this was pretty much in sort of the transitional, you know, they can, you can tell in the fashion and the hairstyles between like late 60s into the 70s. I'll talk more about that when we get into one of the stories, but you can really tell with these episodes. Yeah, Rod Serling has uh, 1970s TV news anchor hair. Yeah, and a skinny tie. <laughs> Uh, the music, I think more than anything else in the show, aside from like its cinematography, is demonstrative of the push and pull and the contrast between, you know, traditional TV studio craft of the 50s and 60s and, you know, new ideas that were being thrown about here and there. Because a lot of the stuff is very, wouldn't be out of place on a random episode of I Love Lucy. And then out of nowhere, you'll hear like Electric Sitter and Theremin. yeah. Definitely, this is definitely a product of its time. <laughs> and just the way that uh, the cinematography in a lot of episodes are, uh, there's single camera stuff, which is always weird for old TV. Lots of rapid back and forths. They're trying to cram as much into the segments as possible. And just all of the weird wipes. Yeah, and I think that especially in the episodes that we, I mean, the stories that we watch for this with a lot of most of you know Rod Serling's writing, he he never he could never write prose. He would usually write by speaking into a tape recorder, and all of his stories are usually very dialogue heavy and could be put on as plays. Oh yeah, definitely. That's something that I've always picked up in the Twilight Zone, and particularly in the uh, Rod Serling episode I'm going to be talking about mm -hmm. in a little bit. Now, after the show had run its course. To boost syndication, the episodes were pared down to 30 minutes, all of them, and uh, many segments were severely cut. A uh, book about the Night Gallery found that at least 39 of the 98 vignettes were severely altered. A good chunk of them were extended by using just whatever stock footage happened to be lying around. In addition to that, 25 episodes of a completely unrelated 1972 program called The Sixth Sense were uh, shoehorned into the syndicated version of The Night Gallery. Serling, because he's a trooper, filmed a bunch of new intros for them. And since The Sixth Sense was also a one-hour show, uh, those segments were heavily altered in the editing room as well. Rob Serling is a trooper. He didn't deserve him. That was the basis of all the notes I made. I, I, I couldn't find a great deal of analytical pieces about the Night Gallery up to my knees in the Twilight Zone. Uh, but uh, yeah, Night Gallery is a bit of an afterthought. Yeah, which I think it, it's unfortunate. Like I, I will forever, you know, support the Night Gallery because it was like one of the first things that I watched that made me really like horror because it was a huge scaredy cat when I was a kid. I couldn't even watch a Scooby-Doo uh, episode about hiding behind a pillow. Aha, insert laugh here. But my dad, he bought the first season on DVD because he remembers watching it as a kid in the 70s. And my dad would have been six to nine years old while this was airing. And he, of course, remembers it as being absolutely terrifying. And some, I will say that there's a couple of stories in here that I find immensely disturbing. Although um, we didn't, we're not going to talk about any of those in detail here. But I would get up early in the morning, you know, so I didn't deal with my, my mom or my sister asking me to do stuff, and I would watch episodes of it. Usually, you know, 
freaking myself out. I know I'm talking it up that it's more scary than it actually is, but you know, the mindset of a tween girl. <laughs> so I, I really do like the, the night gallery. I recently did like a big dive, um, like about a year and a half ago of watching most of season, all of season two. And I think a few episodes into season three and the, the level of quality varies greatly between vignettes even, which is unfortunate because sometimes it's like you watch it and you don't know what you're going to get. So, but I think that the episodes and stories that are really good, there's some excellent ones out of here. There's some that are just like, how the hell did I watch this? So. Uh, yeah, the first ever we're going to be talking about is uh, the shortest one. It's about 10 minutes long, and it's called Professor Peabody's Last Lecture. Because I'm a masshole, I am inclined to call it Peabody, but every other part of the world that is Peabody, yeah. and I just have to deal. It was written by Jack Laird, and it stars Carl Reiner as a stuffy and very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, incredulous. He's an incredulous professor of ancient mythology. Yeah, honestly, when I was watching it again for the recording, I was like, wow, he's that professor who just tries too hard to be funny. And he's kind of a dick. Like, he's really, you know, condescending and rude to Mr. Lovecraft, the student who stutters. Not to mention the other student whose name Mr. August Derleth. Yeah, there's is, Mr. Block, too. And there's a Mr. Block as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the basic premise is that Peabody is giving us a lecture about mythological figures, and it is time for him to talk about the old ones. And in a very mocking term, he introduces all the various gods, uh, mocking them the whole time, and he pronounces the name of the god that you are not to speak the name of. Yeah, we're not going to say it. You know, I mean, we're both, we're both very skeptical people, but... I I'm of, at least for me, I'm of the mind that I don't ever want to accidentally invite something in, you know? You know what I mean? Uh, the old ones were never actually worshipped. They are fictional gods. I know, but I, you never know. I mean, we, we had the conversation about going back to Catholicism if, um, you know, Dracula turned out to be real. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, the only thing that could get me back to Roman Catholic Catholicism is if Dracula, the movie Dracula, ended up being a real thing. Then I would just just put on the crucifix and throw the holy water around and kiss the Pope's ring. Yeah, kiss the Pope's ring, all that stuff. Anyways, this professor, as he's going along, notices that the weather is getting increasingly more inclement, and he just gets more sweaty and passionate as he continues his lecture, mm -hmm. and it ends with him opening up a copy of the Necronomicon that he has mm -hmm. and just starts reciting passages from it. And this, is, yeah, and this is <laughs> this is when Reiner just starts really laying it on. Yeah, and he's like sweating. He's acting so hard. And he's, yeah, he's over-enunciating every uh, mm -hmm. syllable as the storm keeps whipping up in intensity. And his students are like mesmerized. I mean, I think for, you know, most of them don't have any dialogue. They do get kind of chances to react. I mean, now acting is reacting, and they do a lot of that. And our twist, which it's not really a twist because you see this freight train coming before it even starts. Mm -hmm. He is turned into a squid monster, and the last note is him asking the class if there are any questions. A zing. I mean, in my defense, when I watched this when I was 11, the squid monster was really scary. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me, this um, Professor Peabody's last lecture, I almost, did, I almost did Peabody, I almost did it, Professor Peabody's last lecture was my introduction to Lovecraft and all of the monsters, and 
to me, you know, we have to say it, Lovecraft was a mega racist and, you know, it's not great at all. I personally think that this episode is more entertaining to me than the majority of Lovecraft's body of work. I mean, I have a more personal connection to the work of H.P. Lovecraft being a New Englander. Not only that, but I uh, was born and raised in the town of uh, Danvers, Massachusetts, which is credibly Arkham. Danvers has a, or had a haunted insane asylum, Danvers State, which is the first mental institution in the continental United States to perform a lobotomy. No! And a lot of people believe that not only is Arkham based upon Danvers, but that specific mental institution is based upon uh, Danvers State. Which is credible. Uh, Lovecraft is from Providence, and that was the closest insane asylum that was operating during his lifetime. That being said, I am trying to tell you that Arkham is my hometown. I am inclined to feel (laughs) that way. Lots of other people could argue that Arkham is some other specific Massachusetts town. And yeah, hear them out, but it's Danvers. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I really do love uh, cool air, and especially uh, the very well done adaption that uh, the Night Gallery did in the second season. But I think that if you were trying to you know, introduce somebody to, you know, Lovecraft as from both a derivative work of Lovecraft, you know, Professor Peabody's last lecture is a good place to start because. After that, you know, I started actually reading Lovecraft. I mean, I have my dad's copy from the 80s just, you know, hanging out on my bookshelf. And he's wildly inconsistent, even if you can get past the idea that he is going for an Olympic gold medal in racism, even by the standards of his time. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like every time people are like, I love H.P. Lovecraft. I'm like, you know, old Howie, he was really racist and anti-Semitic. And he had a Jewish wife, or at least, you know ethnically Jewish. I don't know if she was practicing. It was just like, excuse me? What are you talking about again? Their, their marriage didn't last a very long time. Well, I mean, his writing is really hacky and purple, and, you know, once again, the flagrant bigotry, but there is something about what he does that connects with people, and overall, I'd say it's just the idea that, you know, we live in a cold, absurd universe that doesn't even recognize us. We are not significant at all. We are here for brief, fleeting moments, and massive forces that don't even know that we exist are just out there and can snuff us out with any moment, and we are completely helpless before the all-powerful void. That is a powerful and universal dread that has been at the heart of us since we form civilizations we really want to think that we are significant despite the fact that we look out into space and all of the evidence is extremely to the contrary lovecraft for all his faults taps into that and i believe that's why people still read him i agree i do also think that um there's a great deal of value in the works that derive or were inspired by him you know, like uh, Guillermo del Toro, oh, yeah. who replaces all of the racism with horniness. I approve. Monster loving forever. And yeah, all of that terror of Lovecraft is present in these derivative works, even in the very, very silly Professor Peabody's last lecture. Yeah. 
Because the one thing that sticks with me is that at the end, right before he gets turned into the, you know, creepy spinach monster, he looks away from directly in the camera and he like reacts like he's seeing something. And I've always interpreted it as, as that he's seeing the great old ones and they're like, you're making fun of us? Wow, we'll fix you. So he gets like a maybe a little brief moment of, oh shit, I really started talking about the wrong people. <laughs> All right, for our next segment, we'll be talking about uh, The Return of the Sorcerer, which was written by um, Halstead Wells, but is based on a short story by Clark Ashton Smith, who was one of Lovecraft's contemporaries. He started out as a poet, and uh, a lot of his work is something that I studied while I was drawing my webcomic where I adapt classic poetry. That is why Rachel found Clark Ashton Smith's name familiar. He's like, I, I saw that somewhere. Yeah, I'm a loyal reader of poetry comics. Go read it. Yeah, I picked this story because, honestly, it's campy as hell. And Vincent Price is in it, in a double role. Vincent Price would appear in um, another episode of The Night Gallery, which in one that's a bit more creepy and sci-fi than the campy creepiness that is Return of the Sorcerer. Clark Ashton Smith, like Lovecraft, wrote in the idiom of weird fiction and supernatural horror, and he did have quite a um, an ear and an eye and, uh, and a pen nib for the macabre, but... Uh, he did approach it with a certain amount of gallows humor that uh, most of Lovecraft's imitators and uh, contemporaries did not possess. Yeah, I mean, Return of the Sorcerer, we were laughing. I mean, it was something that was, like, unintentional, like the goat eating at the dinner table, and it's like, meh. Yep. Like, that was funny, but the ending is pretty funny, too. <laughs> the premise of this episode is that Vincent Price is a sorcerer who hires Bill Bixby. Bixby is an expert on translating Arabic, to come in and interpret a muddled passage in a, if it's not the Necronomicon, it's a very Necronomicon-esque book, because yeah, he's translating ancient Arabic. There's a reference to the ne- I know there, there's a reference to the Necronomicon in the episode. And there is uh, also a lady who is basically Vincent Price's attendant. Uh, I, I forget her name. Fern. Her, her name is Fern, yeah. And yeah, she's putting the moves on Bill Bixby like right from the jump. Yeah, I mean, in my notes, it, it like it literally says he's a simp. I, I believe the implication <laughs> is that she has some kind of like mystical charm abilities, but yeah, it could be that he's just a simp or a little column A and a little column B. Yeah, let's go with both. I actually like put in my notes that after I haven't watched this episode in years, but I was like, is Fern older than she looks? Like she goes off and talks about, you know, how, you know, sorceresses are very powerful. And, you know, I, you know, honestly, it, it, it's a sexist trope that if like an immortal woman, she always wants to look, you know, youthful. I mean, you think of Stardust or yeah, Tsunade from Naruto. She's wearing this, like, glimmering dress for half the episode, where it looks like she's about to, like, show you a car and the price is right. Yeah, and she's kissing a frog. And she's like, kiss the frog! I mean, I, you know. Anyways, Bixby is brought in as an Arabic translator for the princely sum of $750 a week, and you decided to look that up in $2,020. Yeah, so, 50 years ago... $750 a week had the buying power of $5,356. 
So, you know, despite the fact that everything in this house is a big load of nope, Bixby sticks around. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I would stick around. Although, honestly, we're not going to make fun of the place that we live, but sometimes I was like, yeah, the wiz- the, the sorcerer's house looks like a couple stores in Salem. <laughs> yeah, not only that, but Bixby is told straight away that he is the third person brought in to be a translator, and the other two quit in abject terror after a day. You know what, I think they were the smart ones, the all things considered. So yeah, after Bixby gets started, he gets invited to dinner, and Vincent Price's dad is sitting at the table because his mind has been transferred into the body of a goat. So he's just sitting at the table, munching along with everyone else. Yeah, his name is Falling Tower, but now all I can think of is the dad from Quantum and Woody, now that he's also a goat. Uh, yeah, I was wondering if you were going to make the Quantum and Woody connection. <laughs> yeah, no, I would. It only gave them to me. Yeah, the set dressing is very late 60s, early 70s. It reminds me a bit of the Batman TV show. Lots of colored mood lighting. And uh, in the backdrop, there was a painting of The Ancient of Days by William Blake. Oh, well, I'm glad you caught that because I didn't. Well, I, I think it's an incredibly famous image. But then again, I'm a bit of an art history nerd. And once again, I do a webcomic about poetry in William Blake. <laughs> yeah. Bixby translates the passage, but he don't want to actually read it out loud, and he wants to return the check, but Vincent Price trains a gun on him. He's very invested in this. He had killed his brother and dismembered him and buried him in the yard because he wants forbidden knowledge, and at this point is implied that Vincent Price isn't really the person in charge right now. It might be Fern. Mm -hmm. It's Fern. Yeah, it is, and... It's very creepy that um, when he dismembers his brother's body, the body is starting to put itself back together again. So you have lots of, you know, creepy, crawly noises of, you know, hands and feet pushing themselves around. And and I think a great moment of less is more. Uh, Vincent Price says that he puts he put his brother's head in the closet. And then you start to hear banging noises like the head is trying to push itself out of the closet and then later on, you see the closet door, and there's a giant hole in it because the head has busted out to complete the rest of the body. And in case you find that this showing rather than telling might make this episode uh, unsettling, once again, this is campy as shit. Vincent Price is just mugging at the camera at every opportunity. Uh, he has a mustache down to his chin. He's got big old 1970s mutton chops. But, you know, I think, though, is that Vincent Price is what makes this episode. If they had cast anybody else, some other, you know, lesser character actor, it just wouldn't have been as good. You need Vincent Price for this. So, yeah, Vincent Price's evil twin brother, also played by Vincent Price, has reassembled, yeah, has reassembled <laughs> himself, and Fern drags Vincent Price to... Yeah, she performs a mass service. and a black then, mass. A black mass service, and then dismembers him so the brothers can be reunited in fragments yeah she literally says that fragmented but together and all right so we gotta also talk about my one like horror pet peeve as someone who was raised catholic good little catholic girl that i once was upside down crosses are not evil they're not a sign of satan it's literally saint peter's cross because he was crucified upside down which honestly i think is more horrifying than being crucified right side up because he didn't believe that he was worthy of being crucified the same way as christ i mean i was gonna bring that up if you weren't 
At this point, occultism and Satanism in particular, they were fads in the 1950s, but they were still kind of newish then. And I think people hadn't figured out that Satanism is really just a parody religion. It's a more self-serious version of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Yeah, you don't get to wear a strainer as a hat. Yeah, yeah, you just, you just <laughs> have to wear robes or sexy robes if you're a lady. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of very superficial satanic imagery tossed about in addition to the goat and the William Blake painting. Yeah, you know, if you were a six-year-old boy watching this in 1970, it'd be scary. Yeah, or if I was a middle-aged lady watching this in 1970. Ooh, 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 you'd, be, you'd be fanning yourself. Yeah, I'd get the vapors. <laughs> Anyways, uh, at this point, after Dixby politely declines attending to dismembering Black Mass, he decides he's going to piece the fuck out. But uh, Fern decides that she wants to keep Dixby around for a little bit, and he just caves in immediately. Well, she's horny, and she's also played by a beautiful actress, and as we talked about earlier, Bixby's character is kind of a dumbass. Yeah, and uh, the, the resurrection uh, ritual that he has translated had a preamble that said that anybody who translated the resurrection uh, ritual will be like cast upon hot coals and slowly tortured to death. And the last note is him asking Fern if there's anything to that. And as she has throughout the entire episode, she just doesn't give him a straight answer. Yeah, and she just kind of looks into the camera at go, who's you just saying? I mean, clearly not eating the papers on the desk. <laughs> and she's just like, yeah, come to the bedroom. I need, I need dick right now. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about your torturing to death prospects and later. He's like, sure, sexy witch lady, I'll do that for you because he's a. Sim. <laughs> okay, and I believe that covers that. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about the actually like genuinely good episode. This one's called They're Tearing Down Riley's Bar, and I looked over various lists of Best Night Gallery episodes and watched a couple of uh, video essays about this, and almost everybody cites this as one of the best episodes. It was written by Rod Serling himself, and it got an Emmy nomination. You can definitely tell that it's written by Serling. Oh, yeah, Serling's DNA is all over this, and just thematically, it's very similar to a number of Twilight Zone episodes. Out of the ones that we're covering, this is the most Twilight Zone-y. I feel like you could, you know, if you just made this episode black and white, it would fit right in with the Twilight Zone. I mean, aside from it being 45 minutes long. Yeah. But hey, you know, one season of the Twilight Zone has a bunch of hour-long episodes. Yeah, and it's the weakest season. But that, that's uh, another episode. Yes, it is. <laughs> Anyways, this one concerns a gentleman who, um, he's, a, he's a war veteran. Uh, he's been widowed for years on end. Um, 18 years. 18 years. His wife died almost immediately after he had returned from World War II. He's, what, 47 or 48? He says that he's 48 years old. Um, Which isn't terribly old, even by the standards of the day. Yeah, I think he was just being really hard on himself. And uh, the character's name is Randolph Lane, and he's played by William Wyndham, who is also in an episode of Star Trek where he plays Commander Decker, the doomed Commander Decker. This guy is just sort of a, a sentimental, washed-up sap who has been steadily tumbling into alcohol abuse, and it started to affect his job. He is on thin ice at the company. He hasn't been doing what he's used to be doing. His boss is on his ass, and there is a young man who is gunning for his position, and that it comes across about as subtly as I'm implying it here, which is not at all. Yeah, not at all. Um, there's one thing I wanted to point out is that like this came out in a 
transitioning between like the fashions of the late 60s into the 70s you can tell right away from how the characters are dressed is William Wyndham's character Randolph Lane he is still dressed like it's you know 1968 he's got the thin ties he well thinner ties he's got the darker suits the, the you know smaller collar and then his you know young rival is dressed in like Fuck Ron Burgundy, his name escaped me for a hot second. Very 70s, big collar, big ties, big helmet hair. (laughs) Lane does have one friend at the office, his secretary, Miss Alcott, who, (laughs) yeah, like, she adores him, she is fiercely loyal to him, and she is unambiguously romantically interested in him. Yeah, and it kind of goes over his head because he's just so in love with the memory of his deceased wife. Oh, I think he's conscientious of it. He just doesn't want to do uh, anything about it. Like, there's that whole segment where he's just like, please back away. I'm over the hill, but I'm not made of pig iron. Yeah, that's true. I think that he's just, he doesn't think that he's worthy of her. And like, and I honestly think that they're relatively close in age. I wouldn't, I would definitely estimate her to be over 30. As his life just spirals further and further down the drain, he starts having vivid hallucinations connected to the fact that his old watering hole, uh, Riley's Bar, is about to be demolished and replaced by an office building. With underground parking, as he likes to tell people. Yes, this is one of those guys that gets very loquacious when he's been drinking, and he talks the way that a drunk person thinks that they're talking in their head and not actually. Yeah, but you know what? For storytelling purposes, we're going to have to let that go. Yeah, he he can quote Robert Browning word for word. Yeah, while he's in the sauce. While he's in the sauce. And as things get worse, the hallucinations become more and more real. They can become very intrusive to his life. Um, I think that Randolph Lane, he's portrayed very sympathetically. I felt sorry for him throughout the episode. Um, You know, he starts to... He associates with the bar the happiest times of his life. When he came home from the war, his father's still alive. His wife is still alive. His career hasn't started. The math, he would have been 23 years old during 1945. Yeah, and he marries this woman, Katie, and she dies less than a year later of uh, pneumonia. One of his flashbacks is going to the hospital too late to say goodbye to her because he was out on a sales call. Yeah, that he just didn't know. He is caught at not quite the crescendo, but leading up to it, uh, just drinking and singing in the bar by a couple of younger cops. But this older cop who knew him way back when offers to drive him home. He does and drives him off to his old house that he bought with Katie and is also about to be demolished. That's the symbolism. Did you catch the symbolism yet? Everybody got that? (laughs) And I'd say the emotional climax of this. I mean, up to this point, I thought that I mean, I could see where they were coming from, and I thought it was a, you know, a, a valuable theme to explore the dangers of nostalgia, the angst of growing middle aged and finding that there are younger people just kind of pushing you out of the way, and you're wondering where all the time went and what your worth is. I started feeling things like that when I was 25, but uh, I, I do think a bit of it is hokey, and it takes place in this Aaron Sorkin universe where everybody speaks in these pointed monologues. But that's also a Rod Serling thing. 
Uh, yeah, but uh, it made me think of just the West Wing, and this takes place in a universe where you could give somebody who's just being a bit of a dingus to you this really articulate, point-by-point, dressing-down, takedown speech, and it'll actually work. Yeah, well, you know what? The boyfriend who broke up with me because he wanted to do more Taekwondo also loved Aaron Sorkin, so I had to watch way too many episodes of the West Wing in the newsroom. I've never been so relieved to never have to watch one of those television shows ever again. <laughs> oh yeah, the climax of this episode, which mm-hmm. I think just nails the landing. I, I I immediately put all my reservations aside is when he emerges into uh, Riley's bar just fully and starts singing along with everyone, and then out of nowhere, the jackhammers mm-hmm. come into the background, and the various ghosts of the people he knew from back in the 40s are like, they're tearing down the bar, mm-hmm. and he tries to get Katie to sing for He's a Jolly Good Fellow again, because that's what he's been attaching it to it, and she's just like, no, it's over, and she starts singing for Old Acquaintance. Yeah, I think that William Wyndon, like, he, he's very he's very hammy, but... He sells it. He sells the emotional heart of this. I feel like in a lesser performance, he wouldn't have been nearly as sympathetic. Finally, he snaps out of it. The construction crew are just trying to usher him off because he's this drunk middle-aged man who's just walking around without even a helmet on. And they're already into overtime. Just go away. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that he was fired for his perpetual drunkenness, he, he leaves the office and he hears somebody singing for He's a Jolly Good Fellow in the bar across the street. And he notices that... Oh, it's his old co-workers who um, have decided that he's not fired because Miss Alcott gave Lane's supervisor that big old Aaron Sorkin point-by-point dressing down speech, and it worked. And he's like, you know what? You come back, Lane. We're giving you a second chance. We're going to honor you for the 25 years that you've given to this company because you're a human being and not just a cog in the machine. I mean, one fellow millennial to another, what was your longest employment at a single job? Uh, about four years. Okay, yeah, but the, uh, yeah, you know, it's less than two for me. Yeah, we we do not live in a world where you can go to the business factory for 30 years and use that money to buy a house and then retire. We will, on average, be changing careers, not just jobs, but careers at least three times. Yeah, I've already done that. I'm not even 30. <laughs> so that might be part of the reason why I think this episode takes place in sentimental escapist fantasy land. Maybe some aspects of this were a bit more true in 1973 than I'm giving it credit for. Yeah, I mean, all in all, I think it's a very good episode. Um, As a big fan of the Night Gallery, I can recommend some really good one, really good stories. Let's see, uh, Certain Shadows on the Wall is very creepy. A man kills his sister and then her shadow has permanently appears on the wall in the house he shares with their surviving sisters. Uh, No matter what he does, he can't get rid of it. Uh, The Dead Man... A doctor realizes that he can get a patient to mimic any disease, except he decides to get him to mimic death. But then what happens when the mind is alive and the body is dead? Really creepy. One Uh, that you showed me that I rather liked was a very short one where an old man is being attended to by a a sympathetic nurse and also a a younger woman who has just married him for his money. And she is clearly cheating on him with the nurse's boyfriend. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the nurse is played by 
Yeah, Diane Keaton. Yeah, Diane Keaton's the nurse. A not quite famous yet, Diane Keaton. Yes, Room with a View. That one I always really liked because it's very, there's an undercurrent of like terror, and I don't like terror, horror as to what is about to happen at the end of the episode. It's telegraphed once you like kind of figure it out, but it's never super obvious in the last like second, and then you're like, it's too late to do anything about it. Um, let's see, other ones that I think were really creepy. Um, the escape route is one of the stories from the pilot where an Argentinian Nazi is trying to like find peace in like his sense of self. And he starts to fixate on this painting of a man in a boat in a museum. And he really, really just wants to be in the painting. And he gets recognized by someone who was in the concentration camp with him. So his plan to, like, he's going to escape into the painting. He has to. But there's another painting in the museum that might be a little bit of a more fitting fate for him. One that I also really like is Clean Kills and Other Trophies, where this it's a takedown of the Great White Hunter trope, where the Great White Hunter, who has like his, you know, adopted African servant, who, you know, of course, he's like, you were, he's, he's, he's old racist man. He's like, you are a credit to your race and all that. And he wants his hippie peace activist son to kill a deer, or else he's not going to let him inherit the house. So. It's a really fun little takedown of the character trope. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of... Oh, other one that I really liked as well. Uh, Lone Survivor ship in 1915 picks up a lifeboat that says the Titanic on it. And there is a still living passenger inside this very, you know, worn out looking boat. I'm trying to remember the name of this one. There's a really creepy episode if you look up one that has Desi Arnaz Jr. in it about a criminal who's injured and he takes shelter in a funeral parlor and it starts to get a little weird, like any episode. If there's any of the Lovecraft adaptions, Cool Air is great. Pikmin's model is great. But there's also one that I really liked, and it's called The Academy. And that is probably one of the creepier episodes. The Disney or Naz one, I gotta remember the name of it. That is probably the most disturbing episode of The Night Gallery. I, I had to stop watching it for a few minutes after I finished the story. But I'm... Um, those are my recommendations from someone who really likes it. Oh, one more that it was really creepy. Deliveries at the back, which is sort of like a um, medical school is getting bodies from fresh from the grave and eventually some, we need more bodies and let's recruit some Birkin hair-like people to come in and give us more bodies. And of course it has, you know, the O. Henry creepy ending. Yeah, I've read enough Tales from the Crypt to know where that one's going. Yes, yes, you do. Okay, well, as I said before, The Simpsons did a whole bunch of Twilight Zone riffs. They did reference the Night Gallery at least once. I yes, kind of stopped. I stopped watching the show after like season eleven or so on a regular basis. But they have one where Bart is Rod Serling introducing horrific paintings for Treehouse of Horror segments. However, the Rod Serling riff in it is from the Twilight Zone. They do William Shatner seeing the gremlin on the side of the plane. They cross the streams. <laughs> yeah, they cross the streams. And I, I think that kind of symbolizes just how the Night Gallery in general has been overshadowed by its far more famous forebear and just sort of cycling back. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that the Night Gallery is just ever in the Twilight Zone shadow? <laughs> I was actually going to bring this up. I think it's because while 
I, for the most part, I genuinely really enjoy the stories and the vignettes of the night gallery, but it does not have the social commentary that the Twilight Zone has. Like certain episodes of the Twilight Zone are more resonant today than they were when they came out. There really isn't that same level of, you know, cultural criticism in the night gallery. It just doesn't have that. It doesn't mean that it's bad, but it wasn't made with that intent. Yeah, I, uh, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that sounds plausible. I mean, my personal theories about it would be, for one thing, it ran an hour long, which makes it harder to syndicate. And while they did make a syndication version of it, they had to hack it to the bone in order to do that. And I think butchering the segments and just chopping them to pieces probably had an effect on it that kept it from being quite as marketable to television stations looking to fill block time as the Twilight Zone did. Uh, However, I think another thing that it boils down to is just that the Twilight Zone's a better show. Yeah, I'm not denying that it isn't. I mean, I, I have a lot of things that I love far more than they deserve. And, you know, as as a horror writer and a horror fan, I will always support the Night Gallery because I owe it a debt. It's what really got me into horror. And we're both easy, easy lays on the anthology format. Oh, yeah, we love anthologies, you know. Maybe we ought to do an anthology movie at some point for one of our episodes. But, yeah, like I said, some episodes are just wildly inconsistent, and it doesn't have the... Moralizing sounds like the wrong word to use here, but it doesn't have the the social commentary. There is no the monsters are due on Maple Street on Tuesday. We leave for home. There, are, you know, those are some episodes that I always really like. I Beholder, I feel like, would have fit in with the Night Gallery, though. Yeah, the Twilight Zone is more timeless. The Night Gallery is very much a product of the early nineteen seventies. Oh my cannot god! Escape that. Yeah, and and I feel like. It's easier for people to nostalgicize the late 50s, 60s that the Twilight Zone is a part of versus the 70s. I mean, now 1970 was 50 years ago, so maybe we'll see more nostalgicizing of the 70s, but probably not. I mean, I think there's a reason why Mad Men was so successful. (laughs) Yeah, it just looks cooler back then. Yeah, I mean, minus all the sexism and the racism and the murders. We have that here now in 2020. No kidding. Yeah. Okay, well, that covers everything I wanted to talk about. Uh, Anything more before we hang this up? No, I I guess I, I honestly really love Rod Sterling. He's probably one of the biggest writing influences on me and I really wish that he hadn't died so young. It would have been really nice to have his commentary on later events in history. He didn't live terribly too much longer after the night gallery. I'm really happy that his daughter Anne is, you know, taking charge of his legacy anytime some alt-right moron starts saying this is the Twilight Zone. She's like no, my father would hate that if you said that, you know, you know, very defensive, his legacy. And, you know, I think like a lot of other, Rod Sterling in general, I feel like his writing is foundational for like the worldview, maybe the start of people, shaping people's worldviews, like the lessons like Star Trek, like the lessons you learn watching, you know, important TV shows as a kid, it does, you know, kind of shape who you are. So I owe Rod Sterling a huge debt. Well, on that note, I think we can say good night. Oh, yeah. Thank good you night. for uh, listening, everybody. We will see you next time. Bye.